This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Joshua Lucy, a physician assistant in primary care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For patients who don't use a wheelchair, walking is part of everyday life. You know, you wake up, you get out of bed, you get on your feet, and you start your day. And for most of us, this simple part of our routines is something that we can take for granted is normally pain-free. However, for some patients, just these first few steps in the morning can be some of their most painful steps, and this can be the worst part of their whole day. What I just described is a classic patient presentation for the most common cause of foot and heel pain in adults, which is plantar fasciitis. Having pain with locomotion is especially challenging, as many different patient populations are required to be on their feet for their jobs or for various wellness goals. And as you can imagine, this can either exacerbate their painful heel and foot by having to work on their feet all day, or it can deter them from the exercise that they need to engage in to promote their health. Today, we will learn about plantar fasciitis from a Mayo Clinic expert and explore how it develops, how it's diagnosed, and discuss the best treatment options to help our patients quickly resume their previous physical activities. Today, we're joined by Dr. Arthur Jason DeLuigi, a specialist and current chair from our physical medicine and rehabilitation department from our Arizona campus. Thank you for joining us today, Jason. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure being here. So, Jason, let's start off by discussing, you know, what really causes one's plantar fascia to become painful? You know, is this even a true inflammation or is there a degenerative process at play? That's a great question. There are many potential causes uh, or specific risk factors that can contribute to the developing plantar fasciitis. Some could be anatomical, such as having a flat foot or a high arch. Bone spurs can either be causative or even an effect of, of the plantar fasciitis. Having tight Achilles, iliotibial band, patellofemoral, the biomechanical chain defects there. Some of the times with a gait abnormality, if you overpronate your foot or if you're overusing it, such as long distance running, doing high-level dance, such as ballet or aerobic dance at that time. As far as footwear, there's a number of different reasons where they talk about the different types of footwear that may be beneficial or causative, you know, having a flat foot, uh, not having an art support, you know, versus others will indicate, you know, doing barefoot is actually better. So there's a little bit of controversy over that, but we do know that, you know, which we'll discuss later that, you know, things like inserts and orthotics can help treat it. So therefore, you know, one would think that if you have a good footwear with an art support that you can prevent it. There is a little bit of increase, you know, with both age and, and body habitus, where if you're a, a little overweight to obese, particularly then in men that are uh, 40 to 60 years old uh, from that standpoint. And Jason, you said something interesting there about bone spurs, how they can either be causative or result from plantar fasciitis. You know, I feel like we get a lot of these x-rays and seize bone spurs on them, on the calcaneus. How can you fizzle out? Is this the cause or is this the result of plantar fasciitis? That's a difficult uh, aspect of it because, yeah. you know, many times they'll have the plantar fascial pain and they may not have ever had an image before, right? So then you have it right. and you have the burden spell. And then you say, well, is the burn spur there because they had plantar fasciitis and became symptomatic and there's little micro tears that ossified or because of the bone spur, did it make the plantar fascia more taut? Or is it both, right? You know, so, you know, it, it was a little micro trauma, which ossified, and then it became a little more taut. Then there was a little micro trauma again, you know, and that's where you could see some of those different lengths of the bone spurs. So. When you're in the exam room here, Jason, how is the best way that we can test for this? You know, are there any special tests that we should be doing for this? 
There are great tests for it. A lot of them are, are fairly basic, but before you get to the physical exams, always with the history, you know, as you, as you had shared, you know, some of those first steps in the morning are the most painful. So, you know, many times you could really hone in on what the differential diagnosis may be and eliminate some of those other potential causes of heel pain that will really lead you to a plantar fascia diagnosis. But when you get time for the exam, there's tenderness at the origin of the plantar fascia at the medial calcaneal tubercle, you know, as well as along the plantar fascia itself. But there is a one special test that many will talk about. If you passively flex their great toe or big toe, that will cause pulling along that plantar fascia. The eponym for that is the, the wind last test. So it's like a sailing term that would, would, would the sails in the wind, it will pull, you know, by tension, which will then have it navigate through the, wa the water there. So, and you said passive flexion or would passive extension also with your feet and toes, right? It's called dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. So yeah. we actually don't really, <laughs> but it, it would be activating the extensor halysis longus of it. Yes. But you'd be dorsiflexing your toe with Got your it. extensor. <laughs> and you, yeah, I think you also said something good there that we should review that the medial calcaneal tubercle is the real origin and it's not really originating from the plantar surface of the foot, right? So mm -hmm. it's actually on the medial side of, yes. of someone's foot. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's where the plantar fascia starts and then it fans out across the foot. Some people have pain that's isolated only to the medial calcaneal tubercle. Some will have it only in the midfoot. Some can have it along the forefoot as well. And so that's what also comes back to, you know, how extensive that plantar fascia is. And sometimes they can have little palpable fibromas that you can feel in there too. So. Yeah, and you say about the forefoot, this is classically a heel towards the back of the foot kind of pain, but how do you differentiate forefoot pain from plantar fasciitis? Like, how do you fizzle through that? If they have pain to palpation, you know, in the distal forefoot, is that plantar fasciitis? Is that metatarsalgia? Is that something else? You know, so how do you... <laughs> Absolutely. It can be any of those, right? So, you know, uh, you, you see it less commonly in the forefoot, but, you know, it's not isolated because the plantar fascia still fans that way. And it really depends on how taut that plantar fascia becomes. And they may feel it pulling at their toes more, right? The, they may have the heel pain, but they may also have toe pain. Or, or the undersurface of their toe. But going through other provocative tests, you know, it's kind of like doing, a, for example, if it's over the great toe, you're doing the windlass can pull it, but that can also, so if they're feeling pain that's now spreading across the plantar fascia versus isolated right at the first metatarsophalangeal joint, you know, the first MTPJ, then that helps, you know, doing a, like a crank test where you can take the joint and crank it like you would do out of thumb right, from that standpoint, would be more isolated to the metatarsalgia comparatively than you would have from the plantar fascia, right, especially if they're feeling it more distally than proximally. So. When you say about the crank test, you're kind of alluding to like a CMC grind test when testing exactly. the thumb. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's uh... On average, when you're seeing these patients in your exam room, I personally haven't had much success with doing a, high, a dorsiflexion of the great toe and it reproducing the pain in the cases I think it's plantar fascia. And, you know, in your own anecdotal exams, is that something that's very sensitive for you? Or do you do a, something on your own that makes you feel more confident in giving that diagnosis to patients? In general, I think the most sensitive is going to be the tenderness, the palpation over the plantar fasciitis and the tubercle. I think where the wind lasts is helpful as if there may be an additional cause that you're trying to rule out in between it. 
indeterminate from your palpation. You're like, well, yeah, that hurts a little bit. And then you do the wind last and it causes that pains, right? So when you put a maximal tension, then they're like, yes, that's my pain. I think that would eliminate it compared to like uh, for first dorsal nerve entrapment or calcaneal stress pain, midfoot problems, other tendons, you know, that would insert on there. So, so I think it's in combination with everything. I don't know the exact sensitivity and specificity of the, of the windlass from that standpoint that off the top of my head, but I know that it's used in combination with the other tests. So, And uh, would you say most cases, all of them should have tenderness to palpation if they truly have this condition at the medial calcaneal tubercle, or can they have an isolated plantar fasciitis pain in like that midfoot region? You know, like what would you say it, there? It can be isolated in the midfoot as well. It's more likely to have medial calcaneal tubercle discomfort isolated compared to the midfoot, but it can be both as well. So and it sounds like the diagnosis is mostly clinical. Yeah. Yes, it is. So there are imaging that you can do. You could do point of care ultrasound. So, uh, you know, musculoskeletal ultrasound. So you can measure the plantar fascia thickness side to side comparison. You could see just across the plantar fascia itself, where going the length of the plantar fascia with the ultrasound, whether or not it thickens at the area. Uh, they may all sometimes have uh, discomfort with sonopalpation. That's by just placing the ultrasound against that area. So, you know, when you're getting to that, you see a thickened area, you're like, does it hurt right where I'm pushing? They're like, yes, that's exactly where I hurt, right? So you can see it more thin before it and after that spot, right? So you can see an isolated area where it's thickened. MRIs can show it as well. Plain radiographs are still good. It could show the bone spur, but it doesn't necessarily tell you that you have plantar fasciitis, but it can aid in the diagnosis. You could have some calcific changes on a plain x-ray that you can see in their plantar fascia. So that would be like that plantar fascial fibromatosis can calcify. And you could see that with ultrasound or an MRI too. So there's definitely some imaging you can have, but the, you know, there's a lot of clinical indicators that really tune in. And so most times imaging is to rule out other things that you also think may be there, right? Just to get that full spectrum of knowing exactly what's going on. Are you doing that at every initial visit, Jason, or is that something you do if they don't respond the way you expect? It depends. To me, point of care ultrasound is an extension of our physical exam. We're able yeah. to see what the surface anatomy looks like. We're able to do provocative testing. But now you get to combine some provocative testing with sonographic vision, right? You know, right. from that standpoint. So where you can't do that with an X-ray or an MRI, right? So from that standpoint, so it gives you a lot of extra visibility, you know, and it's just further enhances your physical exam skills. Yeah, I agree. I love the introduction of POCUS into practice. And, you know, if you're seeing that thickening, like you're talking about, is there like a specific millimeter or a quantifier of thickening? Or is it just kind of like a visual thickening that you see a transition from the previous thinning of the plantar fascia? It's a combination of both, right? So sure. you could do a side-to-side -side comparison, look for differentiation. You could look for isolated thickening in the area, right? So because in general, the plantar fascia may thicken and thin over time. It may be responding some to treatment, so it may have gone down millimeters. It may be acutely worsening, so it may have gone up by some millimeters. So, you know, anytime you're using imaging, it's still a snapshot in time, you know. Yeah. So 
by itself, you could say what it looks like proximally and distal to that location. And it's not very thick to begin with. So if it's a few millimeters thicker, right, that's, you know, can be fairly significant. But uh, yeah. more importantly, if you do are doing it and you're tracking it, right, you can check that it's thinned over time and gone back to the normal thickness uh, that's more homogenous across the length of the plantar fascia. So there's not like a specific millimeter that you can say that is diagnostic of thickening in the plantar fascia, nothing like that? Not specifically because individually you may have a different thickness of your plantar fascia from that standpoint. So it's more compared to your normal or what your relative normal is, because theoretically you could have diffuse plantar fasciitis and you could have bilateral plantar fasciitis, but, you know, right. if you're a seven foot six basketball player versus, a, you know, a five foot two gymnast, right, you would anticipate yeah. that their plantar fascia thickness may be a little bit different from that standpoint. And, you know, Jason, so we get in the exam room, we establish the diagnosis. Is there a prognosis that we can give patients? Because it seems like some people recover, you know, relatively quick, maybe in a month or so, whereas others can be really protracted for like months on end. Sometimes I've seen it go up to like six months or so. On average, what do you expect for patients' recovery time? And you know what influences a longer one from a shorter one? It would be great if we had clear and definitive positive predictive values with items. Plantar fascia can be fickle at times. There are times where, where persons where they start to feel symptoms and they'll think it will go away and they'll start doing some light things that they've read about online first or what somebody anecdotally had mentioned to them previously. So when, when that occurs, if it takes two or three months for them to get to somebody, right, it may have already been developed where it may take a little bit more time. Others may come to somebody right away. They're like, I, I think I have plantar fascia pain. I know somebody this bothers them for a year. I want to get it taken care of right away. The good thing is most patients respond well to minimally invasive, relatively conservative treatment. So, you know, good stretching from that standpoint, rolling over a frozen ice water bottle, something you can do at home. It's like a little ice massage to that area that you can do also with stretching. Orthotics, inserts, hill cups, all can be useful. They could be off the shelf, something that somebody buys over the counter, or it could be a custom molded, you know, made specifically for them. Evaluating your footwear, if you've been wearing the same pair of shoes or your same running shoes for six months or a year, perhaps you lost some of the arch support there. So there's a lot of like little things that people can do on a day-to-day -day basis that can really make it go away easier. But what I say is the ones that don't respond oftentimes is that you might be doing some of the treatments, but you're not modifying some of those other risk factors. You might be doing all the stretches, but you're not changing your shoes or in the military, you know, you always have to wear relatively flat booted shoes that doesn't have yeah. much arch support. So going back and doing road marches in, in shoes that might not be great to, to wear, right? That, right. That, that doesn't change the behavior. So it might treat it, but it doesn't go completely away. It prolongs that symptomatic period. Period, so. so it waxes and wanes. Yeah, um, exactly. Is there an average time course that you typically see in your practice of how from start to finish, how long an average case will last of pain for plantar fasciitis? 
a great question and it's quite unique. Many people will say they'll call it chronic or recalcitrant, you know, yeah. if they've had six weeks of conservative management. And it's surprisingly how many don't respond that well. You'll see studies on many different uh, alternative treatments for it that are for recalcitrant plantar fascial pain. And then many people say, well, should we do that earlier than six weeks or eight weeks? You know, because if it helps those, maybe we'd never have gotten them to the six weeks or eight weeks. So we always know as we, you know, many times in that case, the numerator, but we don't always know the denominator, right? There might be a lot of people with plantar fascia pain that do a few stretches at home and change your footwear and it goes away and they never even see a provider because they did self-prevention right at the height, right at that initial onset of uh, symptoms. So it's hard to tell us exactly you know, a, a number from that or a percentage, but we do know there's still a high number of persons that really have that recalcitrant longer term plantar fascial pain, which may need more advanced procedures or interventions. Yeah, and Jason, you alluded to a lot of treatment options earlier. Do you have like a core treatment plan that you always make sure that a patient is doing no matter what, and then you add in as necessary? Is like, mm-hmm. do you have a core that you use? Yes, absolutely. A lot of this can be done with a home exercise program that, that could be taught in the office. It's always great to go to a therapy services and work with somebody. You know, there's many things that they can continue to do at home. Start with some stretching exercises that's going to help w- with that area. Again, I, I mentioned, you know, just doing a self-massage with a, you know, it could be done manually with your hand, kind of massaging that area, particularly if you're starting to have those little fibromas that are coming there, putting a little pressure on that area. But a lot of times that could be done like with a, you put a water bottle in the freezer and then uh, you could take it out and you could roll your foot back and forth over it while you're working on the computer or watching television. Sometimes people will use a night splint. Those could be either be a hard plastic one or there's soft socks that could be done where you you know, it can be looped back and provide stretching nocturnally and held in place with some Velcro or another button that will clip or snap together. Those are usually things that I start with first. Also, in addition to that, I would talk to them about, you know, perhaps getting some of the uh, changes in footwear, if applicable. If they wear, wear sandals or flat shoes, uh, you know, or don't have a lot of art support, perhaps talking about minimizing those at times, utilizing things that will give them a little bit more art support, particularly if they're flat-footed. If they do have a high arch, that doesn't necessarily help all that much. And I usually do all of those before I would try to consider any intervention. You know, many times people come to me, they've already done most of those by the time they get to me. And so they're getting closer to that intervention side by the time they're getting my direction. But it's always great when we can see somebody and, and prevent them from having a procedure done. So. And in terms of those interventions, say they've done all these things, it's been greater than six weeks. What are your go-to interventions to help with recalcitrant cases of plantar fasciitis? There are a lot of great research studies that are out there. And there are a lot of things that are utilized, but not all insurance companies cover them, right? So that's one of those challenges, right? There's been some excellent studies on botulinum toxin that have been shown to be effective. Some of one of our research of the year and some different academies that have occurred. There's even been Mayo studies that are done on uh, on botulinum toxin as well as military studies that were done there. So the hard part is not botulinum toxin is expensive and not a lot of insurances pay for it. So many times you have to go through a peer-to-peer review and provide all the, uh, all the articles to support its use. But at that point in time, they still could deny it. 
platelet-rich plasma is also shown to be effective uh, using that, right? So if there's the aspect of that, if there's impaired blood flow to the area, so adding new blood to the area and, and doing some needle fenestration there. Mayo Clinic has done a minimally invasive fasciotomy device that was created by Mayo Clinic for a percutaneous needle fasciotomy that's done that could be there to help clean up that area. Corticosteroid injections have been used. Obviously, the concerns about corticosteroid injections is that it can weaken the plantar fascia and cause a rupture. Uniquely, a rupture, right, would uh, would be a plantar fascial release, yep. but it's just not done surgically, right? So it's not a clean separation there. So you still may have some residual pain. And, and then at that point, we still consider that a complication, even though it's definitive surgical management at that time. And Jason, say you get a case that, like we just discussed, and they have a bone spur. Is there any special treatments you're doing for patients with plantar fasciitis with a bone spur? That's one of those unique aspects as well. That percutaneous needle treatment that was developed with a device at Mayo Clinic, it does have a terminal device and handle that with a little bit thicker needle that can help trim off that bone spur as well as needle that uh, plantar fascia. There's always a little bit of risk associated that. Again, surgically, that bone spur could be removed at the time of release as well. So those can be there as a treatment. So obviously with either of those, you wanna make sure that they're having pain at that medial calcaneal tubercle at the bone spur and whether or not uh, removing that's going to alter their pain process or there's other things you can do, but it can come back, right? That's the thing is that the bone spur remains there it's still going to be a potential nidus for future, you know, discomfort. So. Well, Jason, thank you for sharing all that. And, you know, would you mind summarizing some key points for our listeners to take back to their clinic about plantar fasciitis? You know, some of your favorite high yield things that we, we should really remember from this talk. Plantar fasciitis can be extremely painful and limiting to anybody. But the good part about it is kind of identifying it yourself and, and knowing what to do initially and going in to see a provider, right? So if addressed early, it can it can go away really quickly with just minimal conservative aspects, stretching and ice massage and self-massage. In rare cases, it you know, if it prolongs and continues, you may need to have more advanced procedures or even surgical intervention. But uh, the great part is most of the patients do extremely well without having to ever get to that point. Well, Jason, thank you so much. And we've been talking about plantar fasciitis with Dr. Arthur Jason DeLuigi, and the current chair and a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist from our Mayo Clinic Arizona campus. Jason, thank you again for your time today and sharing your insights on plantar fasciitis and how we can better treat our patients with this condition. Great. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. If you have enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcasting app or visit us online at ce.mayo.edu. And until next time, this is Josh Lucy for the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, where we bring you the best clinical practice tips and trends from our exam room to yours. Have a great day, everybody.